Father, we bless you for the opportunity to gather together tonight as your people. We thank you that you are here by your Spirit. We thank you that we can choose to lift you up and to honor you. And we pray, God, now as we, as we look at your word, you would inspire in us, God, just a recognition and understanding of what is truth, what is good, how we can mold and adapt our lives, how that truth can sit in us and grow in us to create and produce fruits. And so I pray for myself, Lord, and I pray that, that I would speak, Lord, only as you give me leave to speak and that my words would come from you and that that which is good and that which is of you would sit in our hearts and produce a harvest for your kingdom. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, tonight we move into chapter 4 of Nehemiah. And um, if you haven't been able to be a part of our series with us, love to encourage you to go to our website and uh, you can have a look at all the previous messages there. The evening service messages are up in video form. Otherwise, you can grab a uh, SoundCloud clip from the morning services. This morning, we're going to speak about discouragement, distraction, and opposition. And for the first time, I'm going to ask this question, and I, and I know I've got at least one supporter in the audience, but are there any other Proteus fans here in the audience this evening, right? Guys, see, it's a tough thing being a Proteus fan, right? It's a bit of an up and down journey, and so long as we don't watch any major World Cup events, it's usually okay, right? How many of you remember that very recently we played Australia in a test series here at home, right? Do you remember that, Ross? It was a good time. Do you know... Do you know that was the first time since 1971 that South Africa has ever beaten Australia in a test series at home? That's a historic achievement, right? That is, that's more years than I've been alive. It's taken us that long to win a series at home against Australia in tests. Unfortunately, that's not really the reason we're going to remember that test series, is it? How many of you remember what happened in the penultimate test on the, on the fourth day of the last test. If you could put that up for us, Josh. These are some of the headlines that landed in the Australian papers, some of the English papers. I, I, I edited out some of the less PC ones because the Aussie press got a little bit harsh to their team, right? But there was a ball tampering scandal that rocked that test in Newlands. Australia came into bat the morning after this, uh, this hit the news. They were, they were 57 for none. They were bowled out for 107. They lost 10 wickets for 50 runs, which if you don't know anything about cricket is terrible, right? That's like the, if you wanted to have the worst innings ever, that would be about it. Right? After that test, we went on and we played the fourth test. I think it was in Durban. That test, South Africa won by the highest winning margin by runs that we have ever won a test match ever. We beat Australia, one of the best cricket teams in the world, by 492 runs. It's like despicably large, right? They really got absolutely thrashed. And our boys played exceptionally well in order to be able to do that. Mornay Walker was man of the series, and it was his final series. He did an absolutely cracking job. But here's the thing. The Australian team that we played in that last test match wasn't the same Australian team that we started the test series against. Right, they'd lost their captain, Steve Smith. They'd lost their vice-captain, David Warner. They'd lost Cameron Bancroft, one of their key bowlers. All had been sent home in disgrace. And the rest of the Australian team were discouraged. They were distracted. And they were ashamed. And the Australian public, in particular, had ripped into them so hard that they had no heart left. And they crumbled in that final test match. 
And we know this because, because when, you're, when you're distracted and when you're discouraged and when you're facing loads of opposition, it becomes really difficult to keep your focus, to keep your eye on the prize, to keep the goal in mind and to continue to give your best despite everything that you're feeling and that's assailing you from all around you. Right? And the temptation is there to kind of just throw in the towel. You just don't have the kind of focus that you need. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning, what it looks like to be discouraged and to be distracted and to face loads of opposition. And how do we journey through that? Because that's what happened to the Israelites is that they began to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. They faced a lot of opposition and it distracted them and it, dis- and it discouraged them. And that's a work through that. So we're going, to, we're going to look at that together this morning. And we're going to find that in Nehemiah chapter 4. Just to set the scene for you, we're not going to go there quite yet, Josh. If you haven't been with us for a for the beginning of this series, just so you know, Nehemiah happens about 500 years before Christ, right? So it's about 500 BC. Israel, the Israelite people, they're in captivity in a city called Babylon and around the Babylonian Empire that's just become the Persian Empire. It's just been taken over by the Persians, right? Some of them have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. So Ezra and a group of guys have left a number of years before, and they've gone back to Jerusalem, and they've seen what's been happening in Jerusalem, and some reports get back to Nehemiah that the city is still in ruins. People are living there, but the city is in ruins. And so one day, Nehemiah has an opportunity to speak to the king, and he's, he's able to get permission from the king to travel back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the walls. And that's where we found ourselves last week. John shared with us from chapter 3 of how clan by clan, family by family, that men and women stood beside each other and they began to build the wall. Right? And we had, we had priests building the wall. We had goldsmiths building the wall. We had st- anyone who was anyone was building the wall because that's what they were doing as God's people. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 4. And I'm gonna, we're going to read through the story together and I'm going to share a couple of comments with you as we go. And then uh, I'm going to land it with two, I think, really significant things and themes that we can pull out of the, the chapter together. So you can bring that up for us now, Josh. You can follow along with us or you can turn there in your Bibles. We're reading Nehemiah chapter 4 from 1 to 23. Right, and it starts with a chap called Sanballat. Sanballat was one of the local guys who had been around in the Jerusalem area before Nehemiah and the crew from Babylon arrived. It says that Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. And he flew into a rage and he began to mock the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think that they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think that they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and a charred and burnt one at that? And then he's not alone, old Samuel, he's got his mate Tobiah next to him, the Ammonites, and he was standing beside him and he says, that stone wall is so weak, it would collapse if even a fox had to run across the top of it. So the the Israelite people are, are being mocked and derided by the guys that are there. So Nehemiah says this, then he says, I prayed, and I said, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, may they, may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. And I just I want us to notice something very briefly in these first couple of verses. I want you to notice the Israelite people were being mocked. But when Nehemiah responds to that, I want you to notice how he interprets that. He recognizes that when God's people are mocked, it's not just an affront to them, but it actually becomes an affront to God himself. 
and God is roused to anger by the actions of others. And it's just a, a recognition of how significant we are as God's people and how we carry His name. And when people come against us, it actually angers and engenders the attention of God against them. All right, let's carry on reading. Here we see verse 6 says this, At last the wall was completed to half of its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. And I want you to just notice the attitude of the people, because this is going to be significant for us a little bit later. Right? I want you to notice, even though they'd been mocked and derided, even though guys had been giving them a hard time, they'd worked with enthusiasm. There was a buoyant feeling, there was an optimism about the task that they were undertaking for God and for His honor. Right? It carries on then. Verse 7, it says, But when Sambalat and Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, and they heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they became furious. And so they all made plans to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God, and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired, they said. And there's so much rubble to be moved. We're never going to be able to build this wall by ourselves. I want to I pause here because there's something significant for us I want us to catch in this moment. Do you notice when the people began to complain? You notice that, that it didn't immediately follow the mocking. They carried on building. There was a jubilant feeling, right? It didn't also immediately, when, when the opposition steps up, and when the plans begin to get serious about coming against them and fighting against them, still, still they're not discouraged. But then there's this moment where they pray and they come to God and they, and they ask for God's protection. And then they have to respond in faith in order to continue doing what God has given them to do. Right? God has called them. They know they've gone to Jerusalem to restore the walls. Now opposition comes against them. And so they're called to step up. And that step up for them means now they're guarding the city day and night. So before what was happening is they were building the wall during the day and then they would all park off and grab a great like eight hours sleep at night and everyone woke up refreshed the next morning to begin building again. Right? But now the opposition has got a bit serious and so because God has called them to do this thing and they have to do it, now instead of being able to sleep all night, half of the guys are awake for half of the night keeping watch and making sure that nothing happens. Right. And I want us to notice that because for a couple of reasons. One, when the opposition began to increase against them, they didn't just get to say a quick prayer. They didn't just get to have an instant victory and suddenly everything was okay. But it called something out of them. It required something of them. There was a decision that they made to dig in, to hold on, to fight and to stand for what God had given them. And that decision came with a cost. It was physically tiring. They had less sleep. They were more tired. They were beginning to get emotionally drained because there was never an opportunity to rest and relax. And we're going to see that as we carry on reading. So that their leisure time began to get eaten up by this faith response that God had called out of them. And unfortunately, and this is the tragic thing for me as I, as I read this little passage together, it's the cost of their faith response that actually causes them to lose focus on the goal that God has given them. Do you see that? It's the fact that they've had to now respond in faith, and that wasn't easy, that that's actually begun to cost them, and, and they, they've begun to lose hope, and they've, they've begun to stop believing. They don't feel like they can do it. We're going to find out in a couple of chapters time that it only took them 52 days to build the wall. Right? In building times, that's, like, that's not even a thing. 
my dad works in construction. The average project time is one to three years. You know, 52 days, 56 days, it's not a thing. Right? It doesn't even, but they've lost hope. And for them, it's become insurmountable. They've begun to crumble a little bit like the Australian cricket team. And I want you to notice it's the goal that Sambalat and Tobiah had when they began to increase the opposition against them. It was their goal to cause confusion amongst the Israelites. It was their goal. And even though they have resisted, what's happened is that goal has come to pass in any case. Right? The Jewish people have become confused about their purpose. They've lost their unity of focus. And they've lost the, that, the thing that God had given them to do. And I think there's a lesson for us that we need to catch in this moment is that choosing to resist our opposition is only half the battle that we're going to face. And often sometimes we can stop there. We, like, we recognize that there's, there's some opposition here and I need to stop and I need to stand and I need to pray against it. But that's only the first half of the battle. Right? In that resistance, we need to remain strong. We need to persevere and we need to hold on to the hope that we have in God. We need to run our race to the finish and not lose hope halfway. Because if we stop when we've only chosen to resist, right, then the, and then the wheels begin to come off, that's when we can start to lose faith and hope in who God is and what God has called us to do. But we need to recognize that choosing to resist is the first step. And then we need to live that out and persevere in that as we go. We're going to tease that out a little bit more as we go on, but I want us to catch that over there. Right, let's continue in verse 11. It says, As Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, Before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them, and we're going to kill them, and we're going to bring an end to their work. And the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again and again. They said to us, They're, coming, they're going to come from all directions, and they're going to attack us and destroy us. You see, things aren't actually getting better for them yet, even though they've prayed, even though they've resisted. Things are actually starting to get worse. So Nehemiah says this, he says, So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. And I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. And then as I looked over the situation, I called everyone together, the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters and your wives, and for your homes. I want us to notice something here. In verse 14, I think something that's quite significant. Verse 14 is, the, is the, the kind of the pivotal point in chapter 4 where the whole story swings on this verse, right? And Nehemiah is making the speech and he's looking to rally the Israelite builders together. And he's looking to inspire them to hope again and to hold on and to persevere. And so he starts and he says, guys, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. God is great and he is glorious. And you can almost anticipate the next line. He is going to go out and fight our enemies on our behalf. And he's going to slaughter them and it's going to be great. Except that's, that's not really what he says, is it? He does say, don't be afraid. He does say, remember the Lord. He does say he is great and he is glorious. But then his conclusion is, now therefore go out and fight. Now therefore go out and fight. And I think, I want us to catch this because sometimes as, as Christians and, and some, particularly as charismatic Christians... We, there's a trap that we can fall into where we over-spiritualize things. And we over-spiritualize some parts of our theology where we, to the point where we abrogate the role that we need to play in the process. And God is going to be at work, but we need to join Him in what He's doing. And I think what Nehemiah so beautifully points out here 
is he highlights how God's actions and our actions interact and intertwine together. Because God is with us, and he will fight for us. But we need to fight alongside him as he does that. Does anyone remember the story of the Israelites fighting the Amalekites? I'd be very impressed if you just get it from that reference. As the Israelites moved into the promised land, they fought a lot of people, right? This particular battle is found in Exodus chapter 17. And and this battle is memorable because what's happening is Joshua is leading the people of Israel to battle. And they're fighting against the Amalekites on the ground. And Moses is up on the hillside. And while Moses is on the hillside, he lifts up his hands to heaven. And while his hands are lifted up to heaven, the Israelites win the battle. And they're winning and they're constantly in the ascendancy. But when he gets tired and when his arms begin to fall down, then the Israelites begin to lose the battle. And so eventually Aaron and her come alongside Moses because, let's be honest, the battle takes all day. And a young guy would struggle to keep his arms up in the air all day. Moses was not a young guy anymore. And so they come alongside him and they help him and they sit him down on a stone. They lift his arms up and they keep his arms up in the air. Because while his arms were up in the air, God was working with them. And was fighting alongside them. But the Israelites were fighting on the ground. And they were playing their part. And God was playing his part. And Moses was playing his part. And everyone did their part and God did his. But where they stopped following the Lord, then God stopped playing his part. There's a similar principle that we find in the New Testament from the book of James. Some of you will remember this in James chapter 4. Where James says to us, he says, I want you to submit yourselves to God. Then I want you to resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. Trust in God. He is great and glorious. But resist the devil. Stand your ground and actually contend for what God has given you, and then he will flee. See, as Christians, we fight alongside God. And the challenge is this, friends. The challenge is this. Sometimes we're going to take hits on the road to victory. Sometimes we're going to take hits. Many Israelites died in that battle against the Amalekites. It lasted all day long. Many men lost their lives. Because sometimes that's what happens in battle. In fact, most times that's what happens in battle. There are, there are f- prices that are paid. And often people's lives are paid. Sometimes that's not the price we have to pay. Sometimes it is. Right? But battle is not clean. It's not safe. And it's not easy. But, but it's messy. It's, it's really hard. It's challenging. And we're going to pick this up again a little bit more as we go through. Verse 15 continues like this. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half of the men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders who were the leaders of the people of Judah stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. And the, and the laborers carried on their work, but they had one hand supporting their load, and on the other hand was holding the weapon that was belted to their side. And everyone had a sword that was belted at their hip. This is a great example of what we've just spoken about. Right? It's the builders' resistance and their faith response that begins to break the power of the opposition. I want you to notice the opposition hasn't stopped. We're never told that the people stopped planning to attack them. We're never told that the enemies ran away. And in fact, if you carry on reading through into chapter 6, you'll see the opposition continues to intensify. But the power of the Israelites is broken. You notice that there's no longer confusion in the camp. 
Notice that they're no longer uncertain about what God has called them to do. Notice that they're no longer discouraged and disheartened that they're not going to be able to do it. But they've rallied together and they've recognized we can do this thing and we will do this thing and we will stand for this thing because God has given it to us to do. They're no longer in bondage to the opposition that came against them. The story continues. It says, The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm, and then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people that the work is very spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. So when you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding, because then our God will fight for us. Isn't it interesting how Nehemiah's theology is inclusive of that idea? God will fight for us, but again, we've got to do our part. We've got to support one another. We've got to be there together. So we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. And I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way, they and their servants could help with guard duty at night, and they could help us work during the day. And during this time, not one of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, none of us ever took off any of our clothes. None of us ever took off any of our coats of mail. And we carried our weapons with us at all times. Even when we went for water, there wasn't really rest. We were constantly alert. That's the end of Nehemiah chapter 4. And I've said quite a bit already, so I want to close with two themes that I think are really helpful for us as we look at this passage. The first question to ask us is this. As we look at this passage, it speaks a lot about opposition. How will we respond to the opposition that we face in our lives? Right. And you see a collection of different responses in this passage between the, the builders who are doing the work and Nehemiah, who always responds well. Right? Nehemiah always seems to respond with this practical response of this is what we're going to do, and then a theological rationale for it, because this is how God will work alongside us. And the builders always seem to sway somewhere between faith and fear, depending on the moment and the intensity of the opposition that they encounter. And I know for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, that we're we're probably a little bit more like the builders than we are like Nehemiah, as much as we'd love to be like Nehemiah. Right. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to share with you some observations that I found in the book of Nehemiah from chapter 1 through to chapter 4 that helped him to respond in the way that he did when, these opposi- when the opposition came against him. And I think we can carry some of these into our own lives. If you look at chapter 1, two of the things that you see right off the bat is that Nehemiah he knew that God was a faithful God. He knew that God was very faithful in who he was and that he would always do what he had said he would do. He constantly describes God as the faithful one of Israel, right? the one who has rescued us, the one who has made these promises. And that's the second part of that, is he knew the promises that God had given to Israel. He knew the promises that had come from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets that spoke about the restoration of Israel, how God would bring them out of captivity, how God would give them hope and a future. And he trusted that God was faithful and that God would keep his promises. We need to have the same understanding of who God is. We need to know in the depths of our heart that God is faithful. No matter what opposition you're standing against, the God you know and love is faithful. And He knows and loves you. And He has many precious promises concerning you. Peter writes about how those promises can be for us the the rock that gets us through so many things. When we know the promises of God and we know His character, we're able to persevere in the midst of struggle. Another thing that we find in chapter 1, which I thought was very significant, 
is that in between the time Nehemiah gets word of Jerusalem, the opportunity that God gives him to go and do something about it, there's somewhere between four and six months, right? Somewhere between November, December, and April, May is when it actually gets to happen. And Nehemiah says, during that time, I never ceased to pray day and night before the Lord. And I lifted these things up to him. So that when Nehemiah was in Jerusalem, and when the opposition leveled up and got serious, he knew like he knew like he knew that God had told him to be there because it had been fermented in four to six months of prayer. So when things got serious, he didn't run away because he knew the call that God had given him to be there. And for us, this is something that's quite significant for us. If you're going to do something big and something serious, and I don't mean you get a feeling that you should maybe pray with someone, you know, that's, that's a great thing. Go and pray with them. You don't need to fast about it for six months, right? But if God is placing something big before you, have you taken the time to marinate it in prayer? Have you taken weeks, months to place it before God and to just put it to Him in prayer and allow Him to speak to you through that time? I think that was one of the reasons that Nehemiah was able to remain so steadfast under pressure because he knew God had sent him. Some of the other things we see in chapter 2, we see the unmerited favor that Nehemiah gets from a pagan king that shouldn't care about him. He gets incredible favor, and we're not going to go through that. We, we don't have time tonight, but the, the other sermons have covered that. Howard in particular spoke about the incredible favor that Nehemiah received from someone who shouldn't have given it. And, and when we're doing something that God has given us to do, and suddenly we find we're receiving favor from people that we shouldn't be getting favor from. Terry's got some great stories about how God has given her incredible favor with the government as she's been leading a campaign for nursing in this country. Right? Chat to her afterwards if you want to hear some of those stories. But when you start to see God giving you favor where you shouldn't have favor, you start to recognize God is definitely behind this thing. There was a unity that Nehemiah saw in the people of God when he shared with them the vision that God had given them. All of the people bought into it together. There was a buying in of the vision and he recognized this is something that God had inspired, not just in me, but in all of us because we're in this together. The final thing that I want to share with us is the second take home, the last thing that I'm going to share, the place we're going to land tonight. Right. Is, uh, it's, just, it's just how Nehemiah understood what he was going through and, it, and it's, it's this question this idea is what do you anticipate as normal I think for me as I go through chapter 4 this is one of the biggest moments this is one of the biggest linchpins that the whole thing sits on is what do we think of and anticipate as normal if you look at the builders I think the reason that they sway from a faith response to a fear response and back to a faith response is because they have never anticipated that no that their normal would include significant opposition, right? That gets tested for them. I want, you to, I want you to capture what they went through. They left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, and they went with a pagan king's favor. They went with an armed escort. They had all the visas they needed. They had all the resources they needed, right? They went on this holy quest that had come from God, this God-inspired journey to restore the honor of God's city and God's people. They left a place that was God's exile and punishment to them to re-enter the promised land, the place of milk and honey and God's blessings. And for a long time, everything was going just as they had hoped it would. Sure, people were making jokes. Sure, people were giving them a hard time. But the work was, getting, was happening. The wall was, was getting built. 
right? The quest was being fulfilled and the honor of God was being, and his people were being reestablished. Everything was going well. But it's when the opposition begins to get serious that the wheels begin to fall off. It's when it's no longer jokes and chirps, but it's the mobilization of an army that's about to come against them, that's looking to kill them and their wives and their children. That the glossy veneer, and I want to use this term, the, the prosperity gospel, the glossy veneer of that prosperity gospel just gets suddenly ripped apart. And they didn't have the, the term, the prosperity gospel back then, but they had this idea in their minds that because they were doing God's will and they'd seen God's favor over this thing, that everything was now going to be blessed and everything was going to be great and it wasn't going to be hard. It wasn't going to cost us anything. It was going to be all milk, honey, sunflowers, roses, and sun tanning, right back in the promised lands. Guys, I want to promise you the temptation for us to feel this way and to anticipate this is so much bigger. It's so much bigger. The prosperity gospel is alive and well in our world. And look, I know we know in the church the prosperity gospel is a bad thing, right? Some of us know that. We don't, we don't like the prosperity gospel. But it's so much a part of our culture. It's in every TV series that you watch. It's in every movie that you watch. It's in every advert that you see. It's every magazine that you buy. Every story that you hear embodies this idea that we exist for our happiness. And God is here to facilitate that. And if we can just follow him, then we'll be blessed and things will go well with us. So much a part of our culture. It so easily seeps in. It's exceedingly difficult to recognize that it's not always the way things are. Jesus said this to us in John chapter 16. He says, Here on earth you will have many trials and many sorrows. Here on this earth, you will have many trials and many sorrows. I want you to take heart, though, because I've overcome the world, and this isn't all that there is. Right. I think the biggest lesson that the builders learned in chapter 4 is they redefined their understanding of what was normal. See, by the end, the opposition hadn't ceased. In fact, it got worse. Right. But they had learned to live with it, and they would learned to live with it right at their doorstep. They learned to live in vigilance and readiness. They carried weapons everywhere they went. They didn't get out of their mail when they went to sleep at night because they didn't know if they'd have to wake up in the middle of the night to fight and defend what God had given them to fight and defend. It's exactly what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, friends, I want you to be sober-minded and alert and watchful and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's waiting for you to let your guard down. And then he's going to jump. And I know this is not the, the, the most upbeat way to end a message. Right? I, it's not particularly comforting or reassuring, but it is the reality that we live in. And I think we, if, if we can... Just like the builders, if we could learn to live under constant threat of attack, if that becomes our understanding of normal, then when things get hard, we aren't surprised. And when the calling has a cost, we don't begin to lose faith and fall off the boat. We don't lose heart in the midst of the struggle, and we can run the race to the end. And we can persevere and run with endurance so that at the end we get the crown of righteousness that Jesus has waiting for us. But the story of Nehemiah chapter 4 is to remind us that the road is not easy. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a cost from us. But we can stand 
in God's strength. And we can stand with Him and He will give us victory. That's the promise for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, you warned us in advance that in this world we will face many trials and many sorrows. But you said, we are not to fear because you have overcome the world. We thank you, God, that, that you are greater in every challenge, every struggle that we will face. That your strength in us, your, by your Spirit, is stronger than everything we'll ever face. I'm so reminded of, of Psalm 23 where, where David speaks and he says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, even in the midst of battle. God, you prepare a table for us and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you, God, that even in the midst of the battle in which we live, your goodness to us is undiluted. It is poured out full measure. Thank you that as we turn to you and trust in you and stand with you, we can resist the enemy and he has to flee. Thank you that there is victory from opposition. Thank you that your purposes can prevail as we stand with you. And we pray, God, that as your people, you would encourage us to be strong, to stand with you and to fight for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Tam, will you take us into time of worship? Right, won't you stand and join with us as we worship our God who overcomes, how his love